I feel like I've been in 1 John for a long time, and part of it is we have been. It's a rich book. You can't zoom through it. But what I want to point out is something interesting that I heard another Bible teacher say this week. He said, isn't it interesting that while Jesus was walking the earth, there was never one person that questioned whether or not he was a human being. There was never anybody that said, I, you know, I don't think that he's real. I, you can't touch him. You can't. They, the argument they had against Jesus, the biggest problem they had with him, was that a mere human being was claiming to be God. And yet after his death, within the first decade, there was a group of people that John is writing to warn the church about that were claiming that he wasn't a human being, but he was God, but he wasn't a human being. So think about that. While he was alive, everybody said, well, how can you possibly believe that he's God? And then after he dies, he's buried, he rises from the dead. The question becomes, how can you possibly believe that he was a human being? He can't win. He can't meet anybody's expectation. So the reality is, he was both God and man, and he is both God and man. Forever, he bears the scars showing his deity, but also showing his humanity. And I love this because if you think about it, if Jesus was not a human being and he came to die for the sins of the world, then if you're not human, if you don't have life within your body, you cannot die. God can't die. And so our forgiveness, our salvation is not real. It's not something we can bank on. And yet what Hebrews says is that we have a compassionate high priest who has been tempted in every way as you and I will ever be tempted, yet he never sinned. And so therefore, he can be not only a high priest, but a compassionate high priest because he's experienced what you and I experience. So that said, in 1 John chapter 5 this morning, we begin by opening up to verse 14. But as I always do, I'm going to go back just a little bit to verse 13, where we landed last week. He says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. So he writes that we may know, he writes to us who believe in the name of the Son of God, and not just in his name being Jesus Christ, is that his name is Jesus, our God saves, but Christ is his title. He's the Messiah. He's the deliverer. He's the anointed one. And so we believe in his character, who he says he was, who he lived to be. But then he says in verse 14, now this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Did you know the God of creation listens to you? Did you know that he hears your voice, that your voice, that your very prayers, your utterances, your groanings, your, even your complainings, your thoughts, they are heard by the creator of heaven and earth and you. This blows my mind because we're not trying to shout over a distance that's, you know, a table's length. You ever tried to have a conversation at the table with your spouse while the kids are around? You ever had to have a, tried to have a conversation in a crowded restaurant? 
Like, we can't hear each other five feet away, and yet the creator of heaven, who is far beyond us, who is large, he holds the span of the universe. Think about this. Not the universe that we know, not just the Milky Way galaxy, but the span of the universe he holds in the palm of his hand. How great is our God. And yet he hears us from that distance. And that distance that separates us from him is our sin. And yet he broke down that distance. He came to us. And so now this is the confidence that we have in him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. So I looked up the word confidence, and the word confidence here actually means freedom of speech. Now, as Americans, this is a right that we claim all the time. I got the freedom to say whatever I want. I can go on the book of face. I can be in the Walmarts. I can go to a family meal. I can argue with Democrats versus Republicans. Like, I can say what I want, and I got the right. But here's the reality, ladies and gentlemen. We have confidence we have freedom of speech. We can be bold in the presence of not just anybody, but in the presence of our king. Now, maybe this doesn't translate because we don't have kings, but if you read some of the Old Testament scriptures and you read about how they would approach kings, you didn't just bust into their court and say whatever the heck you want. You approached confidently, but you went in quietly, and then you were seen and not heard until the king would say, you can speak now. And you were very careful not to say certain things lest you anger the king because he holds your life in his judgment. He could just say, out. And if you read the book of Esther, that's what happened, right? Esther was with fear and trembling approached King Xerxes and she went in when she was not summoned. Therefore, if he did not extend his scepter to her, she could be killed. And this is one of his wives, and so even as a wife of the king in those days, you didn't just go in there anytime you wanted. And yet, what our scriptures tell us is we can have confidence in the presence of our king. 1 John chapter 3, one page to the left, at least in my Bible, says in verse 21, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence towards God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. And so confidence comes from right relationship with God. And if you and I have spent enough time in this book, we see that right relationship doesn't come from what we do or don't do. Our right relationship comes because of what Jesus has done. And it is accomplished. It's complete. It is finished. And so in Hebrews chapter 10, we have this passage where, again, he mentions confidence. In verse 19, the writer of Hebrews says this, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he has consecrated for us or set apart through the veil that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, he says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. That's confidence. 
assurance. We have the right to be there. He says, we have full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Now think, that, think of that in the context of what we just read last week, where he says, we have these threefold witness, the blood, the water, and the spirit. Now we talked about all the other implications of that, but I want to point out in this passage, he says, we have full assurance of faith our hearts have been sprinkled from an evil conscience. In the Old Testament, if they would sprinkle the implements that would be in worship, they would sprinkle them with blood, which to us is creepy. But that's how they would purify the elements that would be used in the temple. But then he says, we have our hearts washed. So we have our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. He purifies us and our bodies washed with pure water. Before the priest would go into the temple, he would get into this big, huge bath and he would take a mikvah or a bath before he would enter. He would essentially, he's symbolizing that he's clean enough to go into the presence of the Lord by the washing of the water. Now, we cannot, we don't take enough baths to get holy before God. But what Ephesians 5 says is that Jesus washes us in the water of the Word. The Word of God actually cleanses us and makes us holy so that we can approach boldly before the throne of grace. So he says there, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. So we can draw near with full assurance by blood and water, And then another thing I want to point out is in John chapter 14. Because he says this phrase in verse 13 of chapter 5, in his name. So in John chapter 14, verse 12, John, the same author, writes according to the same theme. In verse 12, something that Jesus said, He says, most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. Now, number one, this is awesome to me, because if we believe in Jesus and we're following him, the works that Jesus did, and if you're reading through the Gospels at any time, the works that he did were pretty stinking amazing. Deaf people gained the ability to hear, mute from birth, not able to speak, you, you that are in education, you that have thought about this, it's something you spend your whole life getting better at. And yet this mute man, Jesus heals him, and he's able to speak as an adult when he never learned as a child. Wow. People that have shriveled hands made whole, able to be used. And so I point out all of that. Let's take that in the context of those facts. He says, He who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. So that's pretty great, right? But then he says, and greater works than these, he will do also. So he says, the things that I've done, you're going to be given the Spirit of God, and you're going to do greater works than Jesus. Jesus himself said that. That wasn't one of the apostles. Can you imagine being one of the disciples going, how's that even possible? You spoke a word and the storm calmed. You walked on water. You, you healed people. You brought people back 
from the dead. How's that possible? You should have that check in your heart. Like, wait a minute. So am I really following Jesus? Because these things should be happening. These are signs that will follow those who believe. Now, we don't follow God because he does these miracles, but he uses these miracles to open people's eyes to the kingdom of heaven. And so, verse 13 says, And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Now, notice his disclaimer. He says, Whatever you ask in my name, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Not that we may be glorified, not that we could do something great, but that God would be glorified. And so back here in verse 14 and 15 of 1 John 5, he says, we know that he hears us and whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. And what does it mean to make petition? It means to ask. And I submit to you that the word in my name, that phrase, is the same as according to his will, in accordance with his character. And so I would ask you this morning, do you believe that if you voice to the Lord the things that your heart desires that are according to his will, do you believe that he will answer your petition? Now, how many of you have been a part of a petition before? I have. I've signed petitions. Sometimes afterwards I was thought, Man, I shouldn't have signed that because I don't know what they actually meant by that. But I've signed petitions before. But we, why do we sign petitions? Because we believe that if we get enough signatures, we can get what we want done and make a difference, right? Well, what Jesus says is if we will ask in his character, according to his will, anything on earth, that it, when we ask and it's voiced in heaven, it will be done on earth. How many of us believe that that's more true than the petitions that we sign? I would submit to you, if we truly believe that, then prayer meetings would be more full and petitions would be more ignored. Because I guarantee that more petitions don't come to pass than what's prayed in prayer meetings. God is able. The government may or may not be able. He promised that if we ask that he would answer, that he would hear, that he would listen. And what I love about it is if we petition for something that's not according to his will and we have regret afterwards, guess what? He thumbs through those things and says, nah, okay, nope. (laughs) That's going to harm you. That's going to be good for you. So we can sign the petition and then he can say no and he's going to protect us. So I submit that to you because We have a prayer meeting every Sunday morning. Easy plug, right? At 9 a.m. And we pray over the service. We pray for families. We pray for things that are going on. And I truly believe that when God's church is on fire, that people are asking for things that seem not only doable, but also impossible because we want to see God move. And the greatest way to get God to move is to go to him like a child and ask. Now, that doesn't mean that we can't get together outside of church and have prayer. And, and I know that you guys are doing that. I'm grateful because we've seen God move in mighty ways in families. But in Matthew chapter 18, verse 19, Jesus says this. 
Matthew 18, verse 19. He says again, in other words, he had said it like multiple times, but he says again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Now, I agree that this has to do with believers being together, but in this case, he's talking about prayer. So if you're one of those where you're like, I don't feel comfortable praying around other people, Jesus said, where two or more are together and agree on anything, then he will be there in their midst. He promises to be with them, and he promises to answer. So we have that full assurance. We have a promise that he will answer. And so verse 16 He says, if anyone sees his brother sinning a sin, which does not lead to death, he will ask and he will give him life for those who commit sin, not leading to death. There is sin leading to death, and I do not say that he should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin not leading to death. So what does he mean by this? This is a little bit confusing, and there's a lot there. But we know that God deals with sin. And I put there for you, all sin leads to death. If you remember from Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, God said to Adam and Eve, he said, on the day that you eat of this tree, that you will die. And what did Satan do? He came along and he said, you won't surely die. Now he appealed to their sense of physical death. So when Eve eats of the fruit and she doesn't die immediately, you could tell where very easily you'd be like, well, was God lying to me? But he wasn't talking about death. He was talking about spiritual death, separation, broken fellowship with God. And we see that because over the long run, God actually sends them out of the garden, showing this distance because they've broken the one command he gave them not to eat of the tree. But all sin leads to death. And to prove that, I have another scripture, which is James chapter 1, verse 14 and 15, that talks about this process called sin and death. He's telling them not to blame God for tempting them, but in verse 14 he says, But each one, each person, is tempted when he is drawn away by the desires in his heart, and he's enticed by sin, or the opportunity to sin. Then when desire has conceived... It gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. And so there is sin that, all sin leads to death, but he says again, there is sin that doesn't lead to physical death. And you know what I'm saying, because there is sin that leads to death, and there's sin that leads to physical death. All sin separates us from God And if it's not dealt with on the cross, then we are going to perish for our sin. We'll be judged eternally. But there's sin also that leads to physical death. For instance, if I'm driving down the road and I am breaking the law, I'm drunk, and I'm speeding, that is a sin, multiple sins, that leads to what? Death. Now, you might skate by, but you might not. This is a sin that can lead to physical death. And so some more examples I have for you is kind of an Old Testament survey, and we won't get into in-depth and everything, but if you're a note-taker, write them down. Because people struggle with death that happens in the Old Testament, 
And it's not the death of non-believers. Many times it's the death of God's own very own people. If you look at Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus chapter 10, they were priests and they went into the temple. They weren't consecrated. They had not abstained from drunkenness. And so when they go in to represent God before the people and the people before God, God strikes them dead because they did not fear the Lord enough to go in there soberly. So he strikes them dead. Now these were priests. These were people that God had called to represent God to man and man to God. And yet, when they did the right thing, but the wrong way, God took them. Uh, Korah, the sons of Korah, rebelled against the leadership of Moses in Numbers chapter 16. They rebelled. They said, you know, who's Moses? Why does he get to lead us? Aren't we also Levites? And so they went and they complained and they wanted to represent God before man and man before God. And, and basically God said, you know what? Let them. He said, I'll show you a sign. You burn incense before me and let them do their own incense and we'll see who God chooses between you and them. God had already chosen Moses. And so these people come up in rebellion. They try to take on themselves a, a ministry God didn't give them. And what happens is that the sons of Korah are standing before the Lord. Moses is standing before the Lord. And as they both are offering up incense, what happens? God does a new thing. He opens the earth and he swallows the sons of Korah. And all of the children of Israel see it. He sets an example. You are not to assume what you can and cannot do before God. He judges them. He swallows them up whole. No one sees them. They're gone. And so God judges sin. In Joshua chapter 6 and 7, there's a man by the name of Achan. They've just taken over this first city. You know the story of Jericho. Achan is one of the ones that went in and they utterly wiped out all of the people in Jericho. The walls came tumbling down, according to the song, right? And as they go into the city, he said, you shall take no spoil or plunder. Or if you're a little kid like me, I love the King James where it says, you shall take no booty. <laughs> I knew you'd all laugh because you're just like me. But they go into the land, they take this first city, and they're not to take any of the stuff one of the things they're not supposed to take are idols. Now, maybe they don't believe in idols, but guess what the idols are made out of? Gold, silver, it's shiny, it's bling bling. You know, it's a girl's best friend. And so Achan goes in there for whatever reason, and he takes this idol and some other stuff. And he thinks nobody will know. And so in the meantime, they're getting ready to take this next city. And they are, actually, they go in, God's not with them because there's sin in the camp. And so they lose and people die. And so God points out to Joshua, you guys didn't have any victory because there's sin. You need to deal with the sin in the camp. One person out of a million. And they're destroyed. And so he starts, they start casting lots, the Urim and the Thummim. And as they do that, they get down to the next tribe. And then they get down to the family. And then they get down to the household. This whole time, he could have said, you know what, I'm, I'm outed. Why don't I just, just let me confess and I'll say it was me. But what happens? He doesn't. And because of that, they had to stone Achan and his family. 
because nobody outed him. There was sin in the camp. There goes my clicker. My point is, God judges sin in the Old Testament. Another story is the story of Uzzah. Uzzah not only has a cool name, but he was also a representative before the Lord. And as he represented the Lord, the Philistines had taken the cart that had the Ark of the Covenant. This is in the time of David in 2 Samuel 6. And Uzzah was a Levite. The Levites were the ones that would take the, the, the stuff that was inside the tabernacle at the time, and they would move it from town to town as they traveled. It wasn't a temple that was physically built and founded on a foundation that was, it was always moving, the tabernacle. It was, you know, able to be moved. And so they would carry the stuff, and there were specific laws and rules on how they were supposed to carry the stuff. Well, David got excited because they got the ark back. The Philistines had sent it back after they were plagued because they had it. And when they sent it back, they didn't send it back according to the rules because they didn't know any better. They didn't have the law. But they put it on a cart, and they said, if, if God wants them to have this Ark of the Covenant back, he'll hook it up, and, and he'll, he'll send it back. And so they hooked it up with two cows that were nursing. They had calves that hadn't been weaned. And so if the cows went back to the Israelites, it would be a miracle because they'd hear their calves bawling for them. And so they hook it up to these two calves, these heifers, or I guess that's not the right term, these calves, this, these cows, and they, they drug them back on a cart. Now, it was a new cart. So when it comes back into the camp of the Israelites, they're like, praise the Lord, the ark's back. It's a sign of God's favor. And so David gets all excited, finally, about moving the ark back to where it was supposed to be. And when he does this, he ignores the law, leaves it on the cart, and they move it. Now, what, why does this matter? Well, carts didn't have suspension. So as they're pulling the cart with the Ark of the Covenant back where it's supposed to be, it gets jostled around. They didn't have paved roads. They'd hit a stob or a rock. And, and next thing you know, the thing's getting loose. It's not strapped down. They didn't have no bungee cords. They had no ratchet straps. And as it's about to fall, a guy named Uzzah reaches out to stabilize it so it doesn't fall. Is this a bad thing? No, not necessarily. It's a good thing. He honors the Lord by making sure that this ark doesn't break. But in the meantime, they had ignored that they were supposed to carry it on their shoulders. The ark was supposed to be on these sticks that went through these hooks that were ornately made on the side to be carried so it would never be jostled in the first place. So if they'd have followed the law, there never would have been a possibility of it falling. But instead, they did it the way the world does. And then Uzzah tries to help out the Lord and hold up the Lord. And he gets struck down for touching the ark. No one was supposed to touch it. And he died. My point is, you can do a lot of the right things the wrong way and not hallow or hold holy the presence of the Lord. And it's sin. It's not, it's not deliberately trying to sin. It's just missing the mark, not obeying the rules. So, okay, you might be saying, that's, that's great, but that's the Old Testament. God doesn't do that anymore. Really? So if you look at the New Testament, God is actually the same yesterday, today, and forever. He always judges sin. Sin that leads to death in the New Testament will be things like, turn to Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5. There's this couple by the name of Ananias and Sapphira. 
And if you look in chapter 4, you find the state of the church at the days of Ananias and Sapphira. This is after the Holy Spirit is poured out. And in chapter 4, verse 32, it says, The multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. There was unity in the church. The church was thriving. So much that neither did anyone say that any of the things that he possessed was only his, but they had all things in common. They were sharing. Wouldn't we love if our children and our families would just share? Can't we all just get along? And they were doing this. And it says, With great power the apostles testified and gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who had lack for all who were possessors of lands or houses were selling them and bringing the proceeds of the things that were sold and laying them at the apostles' feet. And they distributed to each as anyone had need. So there was so much love for the brethren at the time that if you had too much, you would sell it. No one made you do it. And then you could share the proceeds with those who were poor. Now, how beautiful is that? And I've seen so many testimonies this week of that going on during the season of Christmas, where whether it's teachers or families getting together, taking the abundance they have, selling some or buying some, sharing it, and blessing families that don't have anything. That's the love of Jesus right there. But anyway, uh, verse 36 says there was this man, Joseph, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus. He had land, he sold it, he brought the money, and he laid it at the apostles' feet. Not for the apostles, but for the benefit of whoever might need it. And so in chapter 5, there was another family, a certain man named Ananias, with Sapphira his wife. They also sold a possession, and he kept back part of it, part of the proceeds. And his wife also, being aware of it, brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. And what we find is that this wasn't sin to do this. What we find is what they did was they sold their land or whatever it was. They gave the proceeds to the apostles and implied that they were giving all of the proceeds. And instead, they were holding some back. Now, what he says here, Peter said, Ananias Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down, breathed his last breath. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things, and the young man arose, wrapping him up, carried him out, and buried him. He died. God took his last breath, not because he gave, but because he lied about what he was giving. They could have decided to give just part of it and said, hey, here's part of the proceeds. But instead, they lied to the Spirit, and the Spirit judged them for it. Now, I believe that part of this judgment was because the church was so young that the church still needed to fear the Lord, even though there was all this love going on, they needed to know that God still judges sin and that you can't just do anything and imply that you're giving all. 
So it was about three hours later when his wife came in, not knowing what happened. And I wonder if his feet, like if they drug him out and there was a trail from his feet from where he had given and then they drug him out. Maybe that's just my brain, but um, it was about three hours later when his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter answered her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And so she said, yes, for so much. And so then Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out also. And immediately she fell down at his feet, breathed her last, and the young men came in and found her dead. And carrying her out, they buried her by her husband. So great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. There are sins that lead to physical death. And God's not to be messed with. Let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. And if you think this is the last example, if you look at Paul speaking to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he actually expresses to them that we're taking the Lord's Supper and they were not taking it in a righteous way. He says to them uh, in 1 Corinthians 11, after he gives them the Lord's Supper, there were some that apparently were getting drunk during the Lord's Supper. They were drinking the wine and they were drinking it in, they were guzzling so much that they were taking it to their shame, to their chagrin. And it says there, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. They were not examining themselves. He says, let a man examine himself. So let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. God has sent his son to die for our sins so that we can have unbroken fellowship with him and then come in and try to take his body and blood with sin going on. It's very presumptuous, presumptuous. And so he says, if you would judge yourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. God's judgment, many times, he says there is sin that leads to death. And he says that because I think, and I've seen this in many cases, there's been several times where I've seen in my lifetime as a believer, which is only about 12 years, where God has taken somebody that is continually and over and over again, entrapped in the same sin. And they don't have the strength. They don't have the will. It's just been involved in their life for so long. They are believers. But then God takes them. And I think sometimes it's mercifully so that they won't be condemned with the world. I think God sometimes judges us in the things that we are not able to overcome. Sometimes he takes people in our minds prematurely because of their sin so that they won't be condemned eternally. That the thing's gone on for so long, he's like, you know what? I'm going to be merciful and just take you now so that you won't be overrun by your sin and miss out on heaven. Jesus said to his disciples, he said, it's better for you to cut off your, if your hand causes you to sin, it's better to cut it off so that you can enter into life maimed rather than missing out altogether on fellowship with God. And I think sometimes we don't have the wisdom enough to go, you know what, 
I've been an alcoholic for so long. This thing's going to overrun me. I need to flee temptation. I need to do all that I can. And we don't. And God goes, fine, I'll take you because you're not smart enough to do it on your, you know. And, and so it, I, it, it's such, it seems so harsh, right? Because life and death. But what we find out is that life is actually found in Jesus, not now and here. And so one more passage, Hebrews chapter 12. He talks about this, the importance of dealing with sin so that our sin won't be dealt with for us. Hebrews chapter 12 says this, Therefore we also, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us, Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He says, Consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. He says, you have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. My son, do not despise chastening from the Lord, nor be discouraged when you're rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and he scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons, For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and you're not sons. Furthermore, we've had human fathers who corrected us and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the father of spirits and live? God corrects his children. And what we find is if we'll endure correction, We'll actually find life, real life. And think about this. Every one of the examples I gave you, they were all judged according to how much they knew. God has revealed himself in different times in various ways, Hebrews 1 says. But in these last days, he's revealed himself to us through his son, Jesus Christ. We have the canon of scripture that is finished the testifies of Jesus all the way through. Not only that, but I can get on my phone. I can get on my computer. I can Google a piece of a verse and even Google, which I believe is an instrument of the world, knows scripture better than we do. And we can Google just a piece of scripture we know and get the whole passage instantly. We have much that we are required of because we have so much truth readily available to us. And so the question becomes, are we taking full advantage of it? So I'm going to zoom through these last couple verses because I said I'm going to finish. And I have Homer Simpson up there with you. You guys ever watch The Simpsons? You you don't have to lie. I know you all have. But in The Simpsons, uh, there's this classic time where he has, of course, the angel on the side, and he's got the devil on the other side. Of course, they're making decisions, and so I'll I'll tie that in here in a minute. But it's like, I think it started with Looney Tunes. But in Hebrews, or excuse me, 1 John 
uh, chapter 5, verse 18, he says, We know that whoever is born of God does not sin, but he who has been born of God keeps himself, and the wicked one does not touch him. We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. So whoever is born of God does not remain in sin. We've hit this topic so many times in 1 John. New creations, if we are new creations, we've been born of God, we have new appetites. That's what 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 16 and 17 says. And this desire for better things makes the carrot that Satan will dangle before you no longer seem appetizing. Now, I don't know about you guys, nobody can dangle a carrot in front of me and tempt me. But maybe it's a brownie. <laughs> maybe it's some pizza, you know. Maybe it's taco night. Taco night, man, that... But my point is, is that Satan dangles a carrot before you and I, and it's the temptation to sin. And if you have a desire in your heart, that desire meets the temptation. We read it in James. It, it, it conceives and brings forth sin. And sin, when it's fully mature, brings forth death. But here's the reality. If we're new creations in Christ, we no longer have an appetite for sin. The, the, the brownie doesn't matter anymore. The temptation to sin no longer tempts us. And the wicked one does not have the ability to touch you. In contrast, the world is under the control and the direction of the wicked one. He blows the wind, and they are swayed. He blows their life around, and they're moved. Anything that he shakes up, they're affected by. We're not supposed to be that way. But in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, he says this, Do not love the world. Do not love the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. He says, all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, it's not of the Father, but it's of the world. And the world, these things that we desire so much, are passing away, even the desires for them. But he who does the will of God lives forever. And so, the world is swayed by Satan, but the child of God is not. And this is what inspires the prayer. You can read it in Colossians chapter 1, but his prayer for them is basically that they would no longer be tossed and swayed. He says, This reason, since the day we heard it, I do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of God's will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all his might, according to his glorious power, for all patience and long-suffering with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness. He has conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood and forgiveness of sins. He's done it all, and we are partakers. And the reality is, you're either going to serve Satan, or you're going to serve Jesus. The question is, and even Bob Dylan pointed out that fact, you got to serve somebody. You know, look up the song, it's true. We all serve somebody. The question is, who? Now I sound like Dr. Seuss. So verse 20. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding that we may know 
the true God. And we are in him who is true. In his son, Jesus Christ, this is the only true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. So we know the son of God has come to give us understanding so that we may know him. That's the whole point of 1 John, knowing God, so that we may may know the truth through him, so that we may be in him who is true, so that we may be in Jesus Christ. This is eternal life, relationship with God through Jesus. To know and be in Jesus Christ is to know the one true God. This is eternal life. And in the meantime, he says in verse 21, his closing thought is, keep away from anything that might take God's place in your hearts. So the question I will end on today is, what is the thing that threatens to take God's place in your heart? What is the thing that so easily ensnares you? What is the thing that threatens God's lordship and leadership in your life? Is it comfort? Is it sin? Is it a specific sin? Is it tradition? Is it family? Is it anything? Anything that's good can actually threaten God's lordship in your life. Did you know that? Anything. And so my question for you is, are there idols in your life? Is there anything in your life that takes God's position? And if so, I would encourage you this morning, before you leave, that thing that God is pricking you about, that thing that God is highlighting to you, confess it to him. Let him free you from it. That's just as bad a sin as the first sin that you ever committed that you were convicted about. You know, whether it's speeding and drunk driving. You know, whether it's adultery, whether it's fornication, whether it's lust, whatever it might be, um, the thing that you used to struggle with may not be the thing you struggle with anymore. It might be more white-collar sin. If you remember my story several months ago, my white-collar sin is what got me fired. But my white-collar sin, God loves me enough to chasten me for it. And when we have white-collar sin, it affects, it breaks down, it, it means that our relationship with him is severed. And there's no less, no bigger joy sucker than that. And at this time of Christmas, I want to remind you that when Jesus came, he came to break down that wall of separation. He came to break through anything that would keep us from the love of God. And he can break through this thing that you're thinking about now. So, Father, thank you for First John. Thank you for John 